As we get into God's word today, Acts chapter 4, again, is where we'll be. Let me start out by asking you a question. Here's a question that I'd like everybody in this room to consider as we get started. What would you do if tomorrow you started receiving verbal threats, hostility, personal warnings to not share your faith, to not talk about Christ? What would you do? Most of us in our culture have probably experienced very little hostility for our faith, if any. For me, as I think back, I, you know, I think about some of the times I've received, you know, anything that like this. And I remember like a couple years ago, I got a Facebook message from a guy that um, I know, that I'd known years ago. And he sent me this message and he says, it's blankety blank preachers like you that I think of every time I'm in the MMA ring and I hope you die. You know, like, you know, he was like really angry and just sent that out. And I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty aggressive. Um, but honestly, that's about, the best I can remember, that's probably the most direct, anything close to a threat that I've ever received, that I've ever received. Some of you guys have probably had much more challenging situations, real life challenges, perhaps in your uh, workplace, in your academic classrooms, where opposition has come your way and there were very real consequences. What do you do? Right? What do you do when real threats, warnings, what do you do when they come your way? When we pick up today in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see how the early church responded when threats came their way. So when we get into chapter 4, this is the 10th sermon in our series through the book of Acts. We're going to be here for a while, working our way straight through the book of Acts. And so far, we've covered some really good ground. In chapter 1, we saw that the resurrected Christ uh, really appeared to his disciples before his ascension. And he said, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem and you need to wait for the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit fell and came upon them on the day of Pentecost, and they received great power and started witnessing, and thousands of people were saved. Chapter 3, um, some of the mighty works that they were doing in the power of the Holy Spirit included uh, the healing of a man who was lame from birth, and uh, that man was healed, and of course the crowds gathered in the temple, and they said, wow, how did this happen? And Peter told them about Jesus and preached the gospel, and thousands more were saved. Well, that was chapter 3, and the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish officials, the chief priests, the elders, uh, the Sadducees, they didn't like that people were preaching and responding to the name of Jesus, doing ministry in his name. So they went and they arrested uh, you know, Peter and John, the two apostles that were preaching, and they told them with many threats and warnings to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Well, the apostles, as we saw last week, replied and said, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard, right? In other words, as we said last week, they couldn't stop transmitting, right? They just continued to transmit. And we said as a church, we don't want to stop transmitting. Come what may with the threats and the aggression that may come uh, against us in this life, we don't want to stop transmitting about the life-changing work of Jesus Christ, no matter the consequences. But for the apostles in the book of Acts, Peter and John, the consequences that came to them were arrest, trial, and then threats and silencing. 
And that's what leads up to today's text. Today we're going to work our way from chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. Like normal, we're going to make several teaching observations and teaching points along the way. But we're going to close with two specific applicational takeaways for us. And my prayer is that at the end of this sermon, I hope that the Lord uses this portion of Scripture to mature us as a church, to mature us in praying, to mature us in praying with, um, with a high view of who God is. Um, that's part of the vision for our church, right? That we want to know Christ and make him known, and we want to know Christ prayerfully. Um, so may the Lord use this portion of his word to grow us as prayerful disciples. Let's begin with verse 23. Verse 23 says this, And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So again, we've got Peter and John here. They'd been arrested. The Jewish leaders kind of held them overnight, then put them on a trial. Of course, uh, when the trial was all said and done, they couldn't really uh, convict them of anything. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to punish these guys, right? Because they did this evil work of uh, making a lame man walk, you know? I mean, like really bad stuff there. So, you know, they released them, but they, they released these guys, but they said, you know, we warn you not to speak in Jesus' name. Here's what I think. I think this is pretty ironic because these apostles who had been arrested by men were actually totally free in Christ, right? They were arrested by men, but they were totally free in Christ. You've got to be free in Christ. You have got to be free from the fear of man. If you can look in the eyes of the very same people who plotted and schemed the crucifixion of Christ and tell them, we're not going to stop preaching about him. You are free from the fear of man when that happens. So these men who had been, these apostles who had been arrested by men were free in Christ. And these free apostles, they, after they were released, they went and they told their friends what had happened. Well, who were the friends of the apostles? The friends of the apostles were the other apostles and probably the 120 disciples or so that were with uh, Jesus right after his ascent or before his ascension and probably many in the new believing community of Christians that uh, had converted and pre professed Christ as Savior. In other words, they found friendship in the church. They had friends in the church. And I will say this, um, that is one of the great blessings of being a committed member of a church. This is part of the blessing of being in the body of Christ, right? When you, when you are in the body of Christ and you have real relationships with people in the body of Christ, you, nev you never have to walk through challenges alone. You never have to celebrate anything alone. You always have family in the body of Christ right beside you. And so I just want to, as a little side note, encourage everybody in this church, like, I hope that you're in Christian community. I hope that you're in a small group or in a growth group or in a smaller group of discipleship where you can really experience the love and the family dynamics that come with being connected to the body of Christ. Um, it is so true, isn't it, that you can come to church on Sunday for an hour, week in and week out, and attend worship, listen to preaching, and still really not be connected to the body of Christ. I hope that you will have friends here. I hope that you will connect that way. Well, Peter and John went back to their Christian friends, and they shared how the religious leaders had told them to no longer speak in Jesus' name. So what's the church going to do when they get this news? We find out in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So what's, their, what's the early church's immediate default response? Their default response is, let's pray. 
This is a, they have a good old-fashioned prayer meeting right here. They come together. They pray about this. They lift their voices to God and said, verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And guys, before we go too far, I just want to point out, like, here they are. They're praying, and their prayer starts with God. Right? Their prayer doesn't start with requests. Their prayer doesn't start with me and my needs. Their prayer starts with God. They appeal to God for who he is. Oh, sovereign Lord, they say. That word Lord in English actually is translated from the, um, is, the word Lord in English, when you read it in your Bible, is normally uh, translated from the Greek word kurios. And kurios is, you know, just like a, it's, it's a respectful common term to honor someone who's over you. Like we might say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, um, in our culture today. But curios was the common respectful term for Lord in the day of Jesus. So when we read the word Lord in scripture, it's usually from the Greek word curios. But here, the word Lord in English comes from the Greek word despotes. And despotes, it, it really means Someone who has ultimate authority. He's Lord over all, master over everything. That's why the early believers call say sovereign Lord, sovereign despotes. You, you made the heaven and the earth and all that's in them. This world is yours, Lord. All the people that are in this world, they're yours. They're in your hands. And so the prayer from the early church started with acknowledging the truth about the sovereignty of God. This world is his. Everything belongs to him. The seas and the heavens and the earth and the lands, all of it came from him. All of it belongs to him. He is the sovereign Lord. And that's where they started. So they cry out to the sovereign Lord of all. And they say this, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So they're about to quote some words from David. David, the cherished king in Israel's history. As you know, David wrote many of the Psalms that we have in our Old Testament book of Psalms. And so these believers are appealing to sovereign God. They're starting to make their prayer connected to scripture because they're thinking out the words of David, which by the way, the words we're gonna read here come directly from Psalm chapter two, verses one and two. And so you can read those there. But the interesting thing is they recognize that even the words of David weren't actually words from David. They're actually words that he said by the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 25? These are the words of your servant David said by the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want you to see. I, I want you to see that even in the early church, before the 66 books of our Bible were compiled the way they are now, even the early church believed in the inspiration of Scripture. They had the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the Psalms. And they recognized that even what David wrote in the Psalms was actually the, the inspired words of God from the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. It's, it's, it's why we as a church uphold the doctrine of inspiration. It's why we believe in the authority of scripture. It's why we submit ourselves to the teaching of scripture. It's part of why we want to know the scriptures because we want to know the God who gave them to us. This, this is God's word, not man's word. And so we want to know God through his word. The early church understood that this was God's word inspired even in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit working through David. And here's what David says. 
And here's what the early church is praying. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So the disciples are praying. They're quoting scripture that's coming to their mind. It ties right into this situation. And this is a passage where David is saying, hey, the rulers and the kings of the earth, they're, they're plotting against God. They're plotting against his anointed. But, but David is saying they did that in vain. Right? It's, it's, it's a waste of time. It's meaningless. It's totally unnecessary. Like you're not going to get anywhere when you try to plot against God, right? When it's, when it's man versus God, God's going to win every time. So I imagine David writing these words in Psalm 2, and I, I imagine him reflecting on Israel's history. Remember when the Egyptians rose up against God and his anointed? Remember when the Philistines rose up? Remember when the Ammonites rose up? Like what, you know, all these people, like, God and his sovereignty shut them down. And David's saying it's, it's vain to plot against the sovereign Lord. And now the early church is saying, hey, these men who have plotted against the sovereign Christ, it was vain for them to do that. It's meaningless. So that's what David wrote in Psalm 2. That's what was going on in the time of the apostles in Acts 4. It's explained even more here in verse uh, 27 and following. Verse 27 says, again, they're praying these words. For truly in this city, right here they are in Jerusalem. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So you really need to catch the the heart of what's being prayed here. David was God's anointed in Psalm 2. Christ is God's anointed being referred to in Acts 4. The nations came against David back then. Now the nations were coming against Jesus here. Herod and Pontius Pilate, part of the Romans that came against him. Not just the Romans, but other Gentiles came against Christ. But I want you to see this in verse 27. Look who is now included in the names of the peoples who are coming against Christ. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the who? Peoples of Israel. They were all working together against God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. So the believers are praying to their sovereign Lord. And in their their prayer, they pray something so interesting. They say that these Romans, these Gentiles, even these Jews, they came together against Jesus, verse 28, catch this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So these believers, right, they're, they're experiencing these real threats. They had watched Jesus experience the threats from, uh, from the Jews and then uh, the aggression and the, the crucifixion from the Roman Empire. Now these new believers are hearing about the new threats from uh, the chief priests saying, hey, don't talk about Jesus in his name. They're, they're experiencing all these things and they're saying, like, Lord, all of this is happening under your sovereign control. All of this is in your hand. You ever experience somebody with ginormous hands? Man, when I was a kid, I remember like my grand, my papa had these huge hands and you'd go up and like shake his hand or, you know, whatever with him. And it's like, his hand was just like this massive squid, just like suck your, your hand in. And like, you weren't going anywhere. Like you try to wrestle papa. And once his hands got a grip on you, 
he's not losing control. You know, like it's, you're toast. And, uh, and here's what I want you to understand. When it comes to God, nothing ever gets out of hand for God. Nothing ever gets out of his control. He never loses control. He's never surprised. He's never watching human history unfold going, oh, I just didn't see that coming, guys. Man, need to make a backup plan. Now better put Jesus on the cross. Like that, that's not the way it works with God. Everything that has unfolded in human history has unfolded according to his plan. He has an infinitely strong, strong hand. His hand is so strong, right? He can just put the world, the earth in motion. His hands are so strong, he can hang the stars in place. His hand is so strong, he can fling galaxies into existence. Like, this is just the strong and mighty hand of God. Whatever his hand plans and predestines is going to take place. And this passage is showing us that all the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion unfolded just as God had planned. The word planned in verse 28 is, uh, it's actually an architectural term. It's a, it's a builder's term. It's a plan, meaning a schematic or a design. And so all of these events pertaining to Jesus throughout history, they were all going according to God's design, just the way God had predestined it, verse 28 says. The word predestined, it means to set something in place firmly beforehand. So our, over the years, our family has uh, started liking to take these trips down to um, the beach in South Carolina. And we'll go down to the beach. And uh, I remember going there, you know, the first couple times and seeing all these houses that were right on the beach. And um, there were these giant pillars that kind of come up from the ground. And then the houses are built on top of these, these big posts. And people park their cars under them. And the houses are kind of up above the, the posts. I'm like, wow, okay, this is interesting. You start to think about how big and strong these pillars are. But then, yeah, you know, one of the questions that came to mind for me this week is, you know, how, how deep does this thing have to be, you know, go down into the ground in order to hold firmly? You know, how does it really get set in place? So I'm a big nerd, so I read about this online this past week and we checked it out. And, uh, you know, they, these posts, if, if you build a house that's right on the beach, they have to be at a minimum 16 feet deep. They get set in place and they get firmly placed there so that why? So if a hurricane rises up, even a hurricane can't move these posts, right? They are firmly set. Now think about these big beams and think about how firmly they are set in place. And now multiply that by infinity and you are just beginning to scratch the surface of how firmly God's purposes and plans are set in order. His plans are set, and they're not going anywhere. They're not changing. They will unfold according to his will. And our text is telling us that all the events that took place surrounding Jesus' death, they were planned. They were predestined. They were set in place by God. So what does that mean? The things that we think are atrocities. Judas's betrayal, set in place by God. Jesus' mistrial by the priests and the Sadducees, set in place by God. Jesus before Pilate and Herod, not declaring him innocent and off the hook, set in place by God. Barabbas being released instead of Jesus, set in place by God. Jesus being tortured and suffering and dying on the cross, set in place by God. And after three days, his glorious resurrection from the grave, set in place by God. 
the crucifixion of Christ and all the events leading up to it are always under God's control, predestined by him. Why? Because he is sovereign Lord. Despotes, Lord over all. And all the earth is his, as the people just prayed, including the people in it. Like Herod and Pontius Pilate and Judas and you and me and everyone we know that may even oppose the gospel of Christ all belong to him. He's working it all out for his great purposes. You know, the greatest injustice that was ever done in the world was the killing of the sinless son of God. It's the greatest act of injustice ever done. And yet God in his sovereignty still using that great act of injustice to accomplish the means of salvation for all who would believe. I don't know about you, but I'm just, I'm so grateful that God in his predestined plan has, has made a way for me to be saved. If you're saved, he predestined Jesus Christ to die on the cross in your place for your sins. And if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but today your heart gets softened and you say, you know what, I'm a sinner. I know things aren't right with God. You want things to be right with God and today your heart gets softened and and you want to know that when this life is over and you stand before God one day in judgment, you want to know that you are accepted by him, not rejected, that you will be in heaven, not in hell. And, and, And your heart is warmed to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, in your place, to pay for your sins so that belief, through belief in him, your sins could be forgiven. When that softens your heart and you believe, you know what? God had that planned out from the beginning too. He's loved you before there was a you. You may have regrets and things in your life that you would be thinking to yourself, how could God ever love a sinner like me? Jesus already died for those very sins that you're embarrassed about. He already died for them on the cross 2,000 years ago. He loves you. And he sent his son Jesus, predestined him to die for your sins so that you might be saved. The early church believed this truth, you know. Really, you know, let's not, let's not buy into this suggestion that any man can stop the plans of God. Um, who tried to stop? Like Judas, right? Judas tried to do something wrong against Jesus, you know, he tried, and he did do something wrong, but he tried to mess things up. The, the chief priests tried to squelch, you know, uh, the ministry of Jesus. They, the uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate, all these people were, were involved in this stuff. And yet what? They were all playing their part right along in God's plan to save the world. That blows my mind. That when you start to see that and grasp that, it shapes the way you pray. Because you can pray with confidence that God is never losing control of anything. So look at the way that they pray. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I just love the way that they pray. They say, Lord, keep healing, keep moving, stretch out your hand. Lord, we want you to keep doing what you do, perform what you do, and and do it all through the mighty name of Jesus. Keep going, Lord. That's what they pray for. But I want you to notice what they don't pray for. Right? They're in the midst of threats and opposition, potential penalties coming their way. And, and here's what they don't pray. They don't pray, Lord, stop the threats. Rather, they ask God to grant them boldness in the threats. 
They don't ask for God to make things easier. They ask God to give them strength while things get harder. You guys with me on this? This is what they're praying. How do you have boldness like this? How do you pray like that in the face of opposition? You can pray like that when you say, Lord, even this opposition, I trust that it's part of your great plan that you are unfolding. So I'm confident, Lord, give me boldness to continue, come what may. Their prayers were shaped by their high view of God's sovereignty. He was their sovereign Lord, despotes. Look at verse 31. 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they prayed and God showed up in an incredible way. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the room that day? Oh, the place was shaken. Love to experience that. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, just as a little side note, two little caveats here about the filling of the Spirit. These things are important for us to understand as we move through the rest of the book of Acts. I think people have a couple misunderstandings about the filling of the Holy Spirit. I think the first misunderstanding is this. I think some people think they equate, they conflate the ideas of filling of the Spirit and indwelling of the Spirit. I think some Christians kind of just use the idea, they say, hey, I'm, I'm saved, so I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit. Well, I think, not I think, what we do read in Scripture is that there's a difference between being filled with the Spirit and being indwelt with the Spirit. Just like there's a difference for a cup of being indwelt with water versus being filled with water. It, it, it can be indwelt with water without being filled. And it's the same way it is in the Christian life. You and I, as believers, we can have the Holy Spirit. We can be sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be living in us without us necessarily living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's why the scripture says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. It's why Paul would write to the Ephesian church, who were already believers, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we're not always filled with the Holy Spirit. The, Holy, the filling of the Holy Spirit is a special, it's, it's a, I would say it's a special occurrence that is not always happening in the Christian life. Even though, yes, we should desire it wholeheartedly. As we see in the book of Acts, um, Repeatedly, as we continue in the book of Acts, there's going to be these moments where they are filled with the Spirit. And first, I want you to recognize that's different than being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want you to recognize about the filling of the Spirit is that there are some groups, denominations, churches that will teach you that the exclusive evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the exclusive evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, some will say, is that you speak in tongues. And here's what I want you to understand. In our text right here, we have an evidence where we have a scripture passage where people were filled with the Spirit and the result wasn't speaking in tongues, it was bold witness. And as you study the rest of the book of Acts, you're gonna see that sometimes when the filling of the Spirit comes, sometimes they're speaking in tongues, sometimes there's bold witness, other times there's great joy in the hearts of the apostles, other times there's praise coming off their lips, other times there's courage in the face of opposition, uh, other times um, they're singing. And so we're gonna see that the filling of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes on people, it doesn't always result in speaking in tongues as the way some teach uh, today. So be very careful when you hear that. 
And the reason why I'm sharing it with you now is because we have to be discerning about this as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. But here, the Holy Spirit filled these apostles and they shared boldly the word of God, right? Despite the threats, despite the warnings, they continued to proclaim the gospel and preach Christ. So God answered their prayer. He filled them with the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit's power, they went boldly as his witnesses, which leads to the first of two takeaways that I wanna share with us today. First takeaway, first practical application, church family, let's desire to be filled with the Spirit so that we can be bold witnesses for Christ, especially when opposition comes. I have you know, said this in previous sermons in this series, but I wanna just reiterate it once again. Church family, uh, we have nothing to be afraid of when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. We should eagerly desire the filling of the Holy Spirit. Everything that God wants us to know and experience in the life of the Holy Spirit, we should welcome that. I want us to be a church that welcomes the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in us individually and collectively. As we mentioned last week, the hostility against Christians is going to increase and again, it's not super you know, aggressive toward us right now, but I believe that it's gonna increase. And when it does, guys, here's the thing. Like, what are we gonna need when the hostility increases? What are we gonna need, church family? Are we gonna, we gonna need more evangelism methods? Are we gonna need more strategies on how to share our testimony? I believe, are we gonna need more apologetics? Like, I, I believe in apologetic teaching. I hope we learn apologetics. I hope that we learn strategies on how to share our testimony and how to share the gospel. But when you are in the midst of hostility and people don't care if you have a good logical answer to their question and they don't really care about your experience, they just want to shut you down. What are you gonna need then? Another strategy, another method? No, here's what you're gonna need. The power of the Holy Spirit. So we as the people of God must, yes, learn the word. Yes, learn uh, uh, tools that will help us be equipped to share our faith. But when hostility comes, we will desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask the Lord to fill us and be ready to be bold witnesses when the day comes. It's not just for us, right? I'm thinking about my kids. I'm thinking about little wing grandkids somewhere down the way that we might have, you know? Our kids, we need to pray that our kids will be filled with the Holy Spirit. When opposition comes, here's the second takeaway. We must also learn how to pray with confidence in our sovereign Lord. Pray with confidence in our sovereign Lord. Yes, opposition will be here. It was, came against Jesus. Came, you know, just think about that for a second. Isn't it true that in our culture today, um, there's kind of this, almost like this idea in Christian in the Christian world that if we're just enough like Jesus, if we're just Christ-like enough, then, you know, the world will just like us and they'll just want to come to church and be saved and nobody will ever have a problem with Christians if we were more like Jesus. Well, let's just remember the basics, right? Nobody was more like Jesus than Jesus and the world still wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? So opposition will come against us when we are becoming like Jesus. But the encouraging truth from this text, the encouraging principle is this. 
man's injustice to you is always accomplishing God's good purpose for you and for his glory. Man's opposition to you is always accomplishing God's good purpose for you and his good purpose for his glory. So just as an application here, just think about the people in your life who are most anti-Jesus, they're most against the teaching of Christ. They, they get upset when you start talking about your faith. They don't want you bringing up Jesus. You know, how can that be encouraging to you? Um, here's one way to think of it. Just as God used Herod and Pilate and Judas and all the others that opposed Christ to ultimately accomplish his plan for salvation... The Lord may use these people who are directly opposing you now to accomplish one of his great purposes in the world. No one is out of his control. God is sovereign. Someday I believe we're going to be able to look back on things and we'll be able to say like Joseph said, what men intended for evil... God intended for good. We'll be able to say amen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Guys, God has a good purpose for the injustice done to Jesus, the opposition given to the apostles, and he has a good purpose for any resistance and opposition that may come to you. And when you understand this, and when I understand this, and we really believe it deep in our hearts, then it's gonna shape the way we pray. It's gonna specifically shape the way we pray when we are receiving opposition to our faith. Just like the early, the early church in this text, just like they, their main prayer wasn't, Lord, make it easier. We live in a world right now where by God's grace in our part of the world, there is religious freedom and we, it is a gift and we should not take it for granted. But let me ask you a question. If our religious freedom to share our faith was ever taken away, what would be our default prayer? Oh, Lord, give us our religious freedom back. Or Lord, make us bold even if it never comes back. What did the disciples pray for here? They prayed, Lord, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And the Lord answered that prayer. And as we'll read in the book of Acts, the apostles went forward as spirit-filled witnesses sharing the word of God. So church family, may we grow to pray with maturity and perspective and belief in our sovereign Lord. And may the Lord make us spirit-filled witnesses who continue to share the word of God even when opposition comes. Let's pray. Father, um, I want to just very simply ask right now that you would let the believers in our church who know you, that you would um, make us eager people to be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would experience the filling of your Spirit and experience the boldness and witness that comes when we are filled. Lord, I ask uh, for anyone in this room right now who may um, really never have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in their life because they've never been saved. I ask that today in the way that you sovereignly and supernaturally work, would you open their eyes to recognize their need for a savior and their appreciation for the fact that you sent Jesus 2,000 years ago to die on the cross of Calvary to save them from their sins. 
Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to hear what you are saying today to your church through this portion of your word and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Lord, we want to be open to you. We want our hearts to be soft and tender, moldable to whatever you want us to learn and apply from your word today. So Lord, even as we sing now and even as we respond, Lord, let us be listening to what you are saying to us. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.